you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out and turn with me to the book of Revelation. <clears throat> the final book of the Bible. We are in Revelation chapter 21, which is the second to last chapter in the Bible. And we will get to Revelation 22 as promised. We will end um, today uh, with Revelation chapter 22. So if you're using one of the Pewback Bibles in front of you, it'll page 1041. Oh, the chair backs. That's right. It's going to take a little while. <clears throat> going to take a little while. The Apostle John writes for us, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable. As for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We have been sufficiently warned. We've been adequately told. For those of us here in the room who are believers, this is our blessed hope, as the apostle Paul writes. This is our blessed hope the return of the king, our reigning and ruling and returning savior, Lord Jesus. And so in this moment, as we store these truths up in our hearts, may they overflow into worship. And for those who are in this room or watching this live stream, either now or in the future, who have yet to trust in you, Jesus, as a savior, you are so patient and you're so kind to us. And you tarry so that we would, so that they might be saved. And I pray for them. I would ask you, Lord, that you would draw them to your side as you've drawn myself to your side. As you draw Colby Craycraft to their side and others to your side, Jesus, that you would do that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. Again, let me just say a word of welcome to you. Um, I'm going to try to keep my sweater on. My children got me a new sweater for my birthday, and I've known all day it was a bad idea. I think it's like fur-lined or something. I don't know. But it's good to see you. And it's, so for those of you that are joining us via the live stream, which is a lot of you, it's good to see you as well. I'm going to say a special welcome and a happy birthday to Cole Cambron, who's hopefully watching us. Happy birthday, young man who turned six today. 
We almost shared a birthday. We could have almost been twins, but so, so close. But nevertheless, it's great to have you. We've been in a, uh, we started a series all the way back in January. You remember January, right? We were full of hope, right? You remember January? We didn't have any idea. We were ignorant. Most of us, when we began this series, we'd never heard of the coronavirus. I was like, what's that, right? If I was to tell you, if I was to tell you everything that was going to occur over the next, like, you know, 47 weeks, you'd been shocked. But the one thing that has been steady and true is God's word and our ability to study God's word. And so we've done that. And so for the past 46 weeks, we've been going through the series called The Storyline of the Bible. And for 46 weeks, we've been looking in the past, past events, past things that have occurred all in the past. Now, certainly we've tried to make them uh, applicable and relative to our present lives. And so each week that's been the work for me is to connect the dots and to tell people about how these truths and these stories and how they all apply and how they're all pointing forward. But the pointing forward that is to come isn't just the pointing forward of a baby to be born in a manger, that even that's pointing forward to a greater event and to this last event where today we stand, we're not looking in the past, but now we're looking into the future of the future event. The last event in the storyline, as we know it in scripture, is the return of King Jesus, Jesus's second coming, and this is it. This is the last event, the only event that we're waiting on, the only event that we're looking and anticipating into the future is this one event, Jesus's return. And it's how the storyline of the Bible uh, ends, and it's how a new storyline begins. It's how this present age will come to an end. It's when Christ comes to fulfill all of his promises to bring his eternal reign and where we will reign together with Christ. And so let me just say a couple of things. And I want to take it slow. I, I've got a ton of things I'm going to work through. I've got my timer, um, which means absolutely nothing, but I will try to be soft to our time and aware of our time. But a um, ton of stuff. And I, I, I feel like the, the, the commercial, the Micro Machines commercial guy. You remember that? Some of you are going to need to catch us on podcasts and slow it down a little bit. But as a way of us just kind of thinking about these things, let me say first that we can say this with certainty that Jesus will return again, that there are certain events surrounding Jesus's return that are debatable. They're open for speculation. We can talk about those such things. We could talk about the things, but we're not really going to talk about the mark of the beast or the rapture or the tribulation or all of these certain things. And I know some of you, that's a disappointment. Some of you were hoping like, let's talk about that. What is this? And what is that? I mean, all this week, my wife and I, we've been talking about these things. She's been asking me questions and I've been, I've been saying, hey, I don't know that that's in the Bible. I think that was in the Left Behind series. And so we talk about those things. And so there are some things that are debatable, but this one thing, is not debatable. This event is not ambiguous in the scriptures, and that is this, that Jesus is returning, that Jesus is coming back. Jesus himself, he promised this in scripture. Jesus prophesied that he will return, and he promised that he would return. There are whole chapters in the gospels of Jesus's teaching dedicated to Jesus's telling about his second coming. Chapters like Matthew 24, Matthew 25, not only has Jesus promised his return, but the apostles have anticipated his return. Peter, James, John, Paul, all of them in their epistles, in their writings, they all discuss, they all talk about, they all are anticipating Jesus' future, Jesus' arrival, Jesus' second coming. In fact, we can even say this, or I should say it has been said, that for every 
for every scripture in the Bible, for every one time that the Bible talks about Jesus's first coming, Jesus's incarnation, his birth and his coming, there are eight passages of scripture that speak about Jesus's second coming. And we look at that and we say like, Jesus fulfilled his promise. The father had a plan in mind. He had a plan whenever he founded this earth. Jesus was the lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth. And we see that God is fulfilling his promise. He's fulfilling his word by Jesus's coming in the future. I mean, Jesus is coming in the past. Jesus is incarnation. And certainly we could say the same thing. The same father has a plan. And the same father has put that plan into place. And what we do know about that plan is there is a second coming that is to come. And the anticipation, it began as quickly as Jesus's ascension. I'm gonna share several passages of scripture just to show you that this isn't one place in the book of Revelation that talks about Jesus' return, but it's all throughout the New Testament that is speaking about Jesus's return. And it begins as quickly as he ascends. The Bible begins to talk about Jesus's descension. In Acts, the first chapter, in verse six, it says this, that when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? The Jesus who was taking up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus will return. It began all the way back in Acts, the first chapter. They're talking about it and they're waiting on it. They're anticipating it. It's already been promised there that Jesus will return. And so the next question maybe that would enter into your mind would be the question of when. Okay, if this is true, then Jesus will return. Then when is Jesus returning? When will he come back? Now listen, we don't know exactly when, but we do know this. We know how Jesus will return. And Jesus will return like this. He will return suddenly. It's what Jesus even says of his own words, suddenly. That we, re- we need to realize that we live in the age of Jesus's return. That whenever the New Testament talks about the return of Christ, it assumes, the New Testament writers assume that it could have occurred at any time. That as Paul and Peter and James, as they talk about Christ's return, they use this kind of language. His second coming is at hand. It's right there. It's within our fingertips. It's almost within our grasp. It's right here. Jesus taught that certain events would precede his second coming. Let me give three of them to you. The first event that Jesus said would happen to precede his coming is the calling of the Gentiles. Salvation would come, the gospel would be preached to the Gentiles, the doors of the kingdom of God would be open and the Gentiles would hear the the message of the gospel and be included into the kingdom of God, into the picture of salvation. When did this occur? Well, it began all the way back in Acts the 10th chapter when Peter went and preached the gospel to a Gentile by the name of Cornelius, and he was saved. It began then, all the way back then. Now, how many will be saved? What does that look like? We don't really know. It's never told to us, but we can say this beyond any shadow of a doubt. It began all the way back in the book of Acts. The second event that would happen that would precede Christ's return is the gathering of the fullness of Israel. 
This began in Acts chapter two. After Peter preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 Jews were saved, that's when it began. And the rest of the book of Acts is the story of the gospel going forth and both Jew and Gentile are being saved and being included and, and coming into. Again, how many will be gathered? What's the fullness of Israel? We don't know how many that the Father has appointed for salvation. We don't know, it's an unknown number of those that would be gathered, but we can say this, it began then and where it ends, we don't know, but it could have ends even today. That's the point. Number three, the appearing of the age or the age of the Antichrist. Now, this is the one that can be a little tricky for us. This is the one we possibly could still be waiting on, although I don't know, the, the Apostle John says that there are many Antichrists. But nevertheless, the Bible speaks about a human who would lead Christians astray, who would lead Christians to apostatize. He's a great deceiver. There'll be a great falling away. But the early church believed that they were living in the day of the Antichrist. They thought, they thought it was the emperor, uh, the emperor Nero. And then there was a time during the Reformation that the reformers thought that it was the Catholic uh, priest, I mean, the Catholic Pope at that time. They thought he was the Antichrist. There was a short period of time when I thought it was Billy Gillespie, but he's no longer in the picture, so it must not be him, right? This much we can say is we can't use this as an excuse for us to tarry or to wait or to say that Jesus can't come back. The reality is this, that in the church age, which is the age that we're living in, the age of right now, the age that began in the book of Acts, and we are continuing in the church age, we Christians have no a definite, unfulfilled list of events which must transpire before his return. What the Bible promises will happen at the end is already happening in significant measure around the world today. And it has been happening in some sense since the earliest days of the church. That's a quote by David Mathis of Desiring God. In fact, we see it in Scripture there are letters and epistles that Paul writes, especially to the church in Thessalonica. The church in Thessalonica, they're, they're enduring just in extreme and difficult persecution. And so all of the, the letters when Paul writes or when Peter writes or when John writes to the churches and he talks about the coming of the Lord, it's to enable them to persevere and to endure in times of persecution. That's why we're, he's, he's reminding them, hey, this is temporary, but Christ is gonna return. And so he writes to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and Paul says this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, we have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Suddenly, he says, that's the picture. Suddenly, without warning, he's going to come, he's going to appear. In fact, he says, look why people are saying there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now, I, I don't know what it's like to be pregnant or to give birth. I've watched my wife carry two of our three children and give birth to them. I, I know this, that it begins kind of suddenly. I mean, it's, it's obvious that, you know, for most that you're pregnant and then you have this child and you carry it, but then whenever they go into labor, it's something fairly sudden. But then what happens is it's, it's the pain kind of, it's waves of pain. Again, I don't know. I'm just, I saw, I saw the look on my wife's face, right? Waves of pain, 
intensifying and intensifying and intensifying. And then a second of jubilation and celebration. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. There's going to be waves of pain and waves of persecution and waves of difficulty that we are going to experience in the church. But then finally and suddenly it's going to give away to jubilation and celebration as Jesus returns. Verse 4, but you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, they sleep at night, and those who get drunk, they get are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, he says, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And that's how we are to live. We're to live in light of this day, both for believers and unbelievers. We're to live in light of this day, that this day is coming. How are we as believers, how are we to live while we wait? Well, it's this expectantly. We are longing for Jesus's return. We're to be prepared. It's the teaching that Jesus gives in the parable of the 10 virgins in Matthew chapter 25. That's the point. Be prepared, be waiting, be watching, which means for us two things. Number one, be saved. And over and over again, I'm going to hammer this home. Be saved. The only way to escape Jesus's judgment is to be saved, to be found in him to have received his righteousness, your righteousness, your good works, your religiosity is of no value whatsoever to the just judge of the universe. You need to be clothed. And the only proper clothing, the only adornment that Jesus will recognize will be his robe of righteousness that he puts on you by faith in him alone. It's an exercise of his grace. Nothing else will stand. So number one, be saved. Have your sins washed, forgiven. Receive Christ as Savior. And number two, stay pure. Those who have been saved, we are continually purifying ourselves as evidence to our salvation, as evidence to the work of the Spirit. We're constantly hating our sin and longing to be in Jesus and be longing to be washed and fully made pure in him. We're to be, as Paul said here, we're to be children of the light, children of the day. Don't be asleep. That's the whole point. Don't be lost in the dark. That's the whole point. Titus chapter two, Paul writes to young Titus, who is a pastor. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's Jesus's first coming, has appeared, past tense. Jesus has come. He's brought salvation to anyone who will believe in him, trust in him, receive him. And then look, he even hints at sanctification here. This work of Jesus that's saving us, that's bringing grace to us, it's also, it's training us. What's it training us to do? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. And then also there's this caveat there. Verse number 13, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There's this element for us of waiting. We're anticipating. We're living expectant lives for us as Christians. And while we are waiting, what are we doing? Well, notice what he says. We're renouncing. We're renouncing ungodliness. We're renouncing worldly passions. What renouncing means is that you're declaring that you've abandoned those things. Renouncing means you've rejected them. You're saying, I've rejected them, and you're living a life congruent to the rejection of those sorts of things. That's how we're to be living. We're living lives of uh, godliness. We're living self-controlled lives. We're living upright lives. We're living godly lives in this present day. So let me ask you, let me ask you, dear church, those of you that are joining us on the live stream, let me ask you have, you, have you renounced your sin in Jesus? Have you renounced your sin, I'm sorry, to Jesus? Have you said to Jesus, Jesus, I'm sorry for the life that I've lived. I've lived a selfish life, a sinful life. I've lived a life that's all been all about me, how I can glory, how I can boast, my rebellion, my religion, my whatever. I've lived a life totally for me. Have you renounced that life? Have you said to Jesus, Jesus, forgive me, I'm sorry. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know that I was leaving you. I didn't know that I was rejecting you in the way that I've lived. Have you named your sins? Have you admitted those things? Have you confessed those things? Have you repented of those things? Have you turned away from those things and said, this is the kind of life that I now want to live. I used to live a life of ungodliness and a life of sin and a life of self and a life of pride and all of those ways. And now what I wanna do is I wanna live a life that's submitted to you. I wanna live a life that's self-controlled that you've given the Holy Spirit to me so I can live in control of my flesh. I renounce all of my ungodliness and all of my worldly passions. I renounce my lust and my greed and my jealousy and my pride. I renounce those things. And Lord, I'm living in agreement with you, with what you declare about those things. I'm not reveling in them. I'm not boasting in those things. But Lord, in fact, I hate those things and I'm asking you to forgive me. That's what it means to be saved. Have you followed that prayer up to say, Lord, I'm willing, I'm desirous. I want to worship you and to love you, Jesus. And I want you to be my savior. And I want to belong to you. That's what it means to be saved. That's exactly what Paul is writing about here in Titus 2. That we're expectant and we're waiting and we're longing for Jesus' return. We live in a day to day, not unlike Peter's day, when Peter wrote, the book of 2 Peter, there's false teachers all around and Peter's writing to those false teachers, but not only are there false teachers, but there's pagans who Peter calls their scoffers and they begin to scoff at the Christians. They begin to make fun of the Christians. They say, Christians, you keep talking about this return of Jesus, but I don't know if you've noticed or not, but he hasn't come back and now thousands of years have transpired and still there is no Jesus. He's not returned. And Peter writes in, that, in his short epistle in 2 Peter, and he says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years are as one day. What that means is only two days have transpired since Jesus ascended into heaven on God's timetable. And it's not one for one, but it is as if only two days 
Only two days ago did Jesus burst forth out of the tomb and arise and, and ascend into heaven. For us, it seems like, gosh, 2,000 years ago, that's an eternity ago, right? We just celebrated a birthday. And I think about all, all my life. And I think, you know, 40 years ago when I was six years old, man, that was an eternity ago. But it was that long ago. And it is to God that long ago that he resurrected his son and his son ascended onto high. His tarrying, his waiting has nothing to do with his inability to come or his reluctance to come or the truth that he isn't going to come. In fact, Peter tells us, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. What you see here isn't God being slow, but it's God being patient but is patient. And who is he patient toward? Well, he's being patient toward you. He's being patient toward you, unbeliever. He's being patient toward you who scoff at Jesus, you who are in your sin. He's being patient toward you, not wishing that any, look at the heart of God, not wishing that any would perish, not being so patient and so kind and so gracious to them, waiting on them to, to return, waiting for them to come back waiting that all should reach repentance. What the apostle Peter says, he says, it's just like the life that we're living in. It's no different than it was in the days of Noah. People are eating and they're drinking. They're marrying, they're giving in marriage. It's not that big of a difference. There's this crazy preacher is preaching a message of repentance. The world is rebellious and they're living. It says what they did not know is that God was storing up judgment. That's what Peter says. God's storing up his wrath and he's storing up judgment and it's being stored up in the waters under the earth is what he says. And then there comes a day when God releases his judgment and he sets forth his waters and the earth is destroyed in a flood. And what Peter says is the same thing is occurring right now. People are living their lives rebellious. There's living for this world and this world alone no thought or very little thought to the coming of Christ to eternity. He's living for the now. And what we don't realize is God is again, he's storing up his wrath. Only then this time it's in the form of fire, Peter says. I don't know if you've ever thought about it or not, but we live on a planet that is made up of a very thin crust of dirt and rock and sediment. And then in the middle of it is a ball of fire. It says it's as if that is the furnace of God. And God is stoking that furnace for a day that will come in the future when he will destroy this earth and even the heavens as we know them now with fire. Verse number, I'm in 2 Peter chapter three, still verse number 11. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people are, ought you to be in the lives of holiness and God, godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies, they will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, a couple of things that teaches us. Judgment day is coming. That's one, judgment day is coming. Nobody gets away with anything. Some of you have been sinned against. Some of you have been treated wrongly and unjustly. And judgment day is coming for that person that has done that. 
There is a day that is to come when the just judge of the universe who knows all, has seen all, judges justly, which means perfectly, and he will mete out his justice. There is a final analysis to be had that is yet to occur, but that day is coming in the future. That is number one, and nobody gets away with nothing. But number two, look what he says to us. Those of us who are saved, those of us who are in Christ, Jesus' promise for us is that a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells is awaiting us, which leads us to our text in Revelation chapter 21. That's what occurs after Jesus' judgment, Revelation 21 occurs. After Jesus' second returning, you have this moment of judgment where God will, where Jesus will judge the inhabitants of the earth for all of time. He will judge them. And then you have for the believers, for those who have been found in Christ, for those who have been waiting for Christ, for those who have, who have offered up sacrifices in the past in hopes of the coming of Christ, you have for us this idea or this thing called the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what occurs. Paul writes in Colossians chapter three, he says, if you have been, if you have been um, raised with Christ, then think about the things, then think about heavens, what he says. Then think about where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Um, Eugene Peterson writes in his little, uh, the message trans, translation of the Bible. It's not even really a translation. It's like, it's putting it in, in, in his own words. It's not a one-for-one translation. He's not looking at the Greek and Hebrew. It's nothing like the ESV, but it's, fun to read at times. And Eugene Peterson, he writes like this. He says, uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 3, he puts this, let heaven fill your minds. And that's what I want those of you who are believers here for the next few minutes. I just want you to let heaven fill your minds. As you think about the description of not just the heavens that is now, but the heavens that is to come, the heavens that we will someday in the future that we will see. Notice number one, I'm gonna give you a couple of words. They are gonna start with R. So I'm a you know, trendy pastor like that. But so here's the three words that I want you to think about. The first one will be renewal. The second one will be reunion. And the third one will be reign. Those are the three are our words as we work our way through this text of scripture. The first one is renewal. Look at what he says in Revelation chapter 21, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now in the Greek, and that's what this was written in, in the Greek, there are two words for the word new. Like we really just have one word for new and it's just new. And we got to invent ways around new. Like some of us, when we buy a used vehicle, what do we say? We say, well, I got a new to me vehicle, right? But in the Greek, there's several different words that can mean the word new or are translated in English for us as new. Two of those words is the first one is um, neos, which means brand new. But then there's a second word, kainos, and it means remade. And whenever John used here a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, He's using the word kainos here, that even though the old has been destroyed, but it's as if God is using the blueprint for what he created in Genesis chapter one to remake and to remake and to, and to renew the earth. It's kind of a, a redo, if you will. And I say that to remind us that heaven is not some new 
colorless, ethereal realm, completely unlike where we are. It is renewed and it's a remade heaven and it's an earth. And the truth is, I think that most of us as preachers and pastors and writers, we've done a terrible job of describing heaven to people. I mean, if it was, if we were trying to describe a vacation destination, we described it in the same way we described uh, heaven, most people would be like, uh, thanks, but no thanks. In fact, as you think about you in heaven, what are some of the things that probably fill your mind? Some of you, maybe you picture yourself, you know, becoming an angel. And what's an angel? Well, an angel's a, a fat baby with curly hair wearing a diaper. And what instrument are you playing while you're in heaven? Not the electric guitar, not a bass, not a piano. You're playing a harp. I mean, for those of you that play a harp, I apologize, but that's probably the least cool instrument I can think of. Like my son growing up wanted to be in a rock and roll band, but he never said, I hope to grow up and play the harp in the band. No, it was like drummer, electric guitarist, you know, something like that. But what are you gonna be in heaven? Like for many of us, the pictures that fills our mind is things like that. And some of you, you've heard things like that and you think like, are you sure you're describing heaven? Because it sounds a whole lot like hell to me, right? Others of you, you may go like, you know, what's heaven gonna be like? What's well, gonna be like one eternal church service? <laughs> We're gonna sing and then all the elders from all of history past are gonna tag team preach, preaching and preaching and preaching. And again, you say, thanks, but no thanks. It's we've done a disservice to the imagery of what, Heaven really is, that heaven is not some ethereal place where you're gonna live as a ghost floating around on marshmallow clouds and doing whatever. It's none of those things. What's it gonna be like? I don't know. I think it's gonna be a lot like what we see here. I think our bodies, they'll be glorified, resurrected bodies, and they'll probably look a whole lot like they do here. But let me just say this. If you can live a contented, happy, joyous, satisfied life in this world, in this fallen, cursed earth, why would you think anything that is to come would be anything less? And that's the reality. That for those of you that are saved, it's only going to get better. I mean, think about what Jesus gives us a glimpse of his resurrected body. We get a glimpse of what our glorified bodies are gonna be look like when Jesus returns. After Jesus' resurrection, Jesus stays you know, for 40 days with his disciples and we get a picture. Jesus is in a body. Jesus eats. He walks around. He could be touched. Remember Thomas? Thomas, touch me, touch my side. He could be touched. He's not a ghost. Now there's certain things that he is able to do with his body that you know is not like what you and I can do with our bodies. We can't just appear in rooms, but none of those things are the point. The point of what he's saying is, is that look at yourself and look at us. And this is probably a lot like what we will look like. I think it really forces us when we let heaven fill our minds, when we really begin to let our imaginations, our informed imaginations by the scriptures, we let them run as we, as we um, think about the life that is to come. It, I think it really makes us rethink ideas like a bucket list. Like many of you live in your life and you're thinking about this bucket list, things that you wanna do for your die as if you've gotta wring all of the life out of this life here in this world. And this is temporary as if there's not gonna be any pleasures to be had for those of us who are Christian. And that's simply untrue. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter five, when Paul talks about 
us laying down this body. He refers to this body. He says, it's like a, it's like a pump tent, you know, in the backyard. And you're gonna lay this tent down and what you're gonna receive in heaven is gonna be a temple, something that's substantial, something that looks beautiful, right? Right now we look like tents. Coming today, we're gonna look like a temple. But also in that, what Paul says, there's coming a day whenever this temporary mortal life of yours will be swallowed up, Paul uses the language. And there's almost like this hesitation there. At least I read it as a hesitation. And the word that you wanna insert is what's swallowing up this life of yours? Well, you wanna think death. Those of you and I, those of us in this room who have loved ones who have passed away, they're no longer with us. Their lives as we knew it, it got swallowed up. But what swallowed it up? Well, we wanna picture Death swallowed it up, but that's not the word that Paul uses. He uses the opposite. He says that life has been swallowed up by life, greater life, more life, eternal life. What's temporary has been laid down and it's put on what is eternal. That's the picture. And it really should force us to rethink things. A lot of you just living your best life now. And let me just say this, for those of you who are unbelievers, for those of you who harden your heart at Jesus, this is your best life now and live it up. But for those of us in this room who are saved, this is as closest to hell that we will ever be. Our best life is not to be found in this life, but our best life is to come and let us live like that. Let us live with eternity in mind. There will be a reunion to be had. Look at verse number three. And I heard a loud voice, I like that, a loud voice from the throne. Who sits on thrones? Kings sit on thrones. Kings are sitting on this throne, reigning and ruling and interceding. And Jesus, the king, he says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Number one, there is this rhythm there. For those of you that have been with us through the storyline, we've used this often. We've talked about the kingdom of God. We describe the kingdom of God as God's people in God's place under God's blessing and rule. And that language is here. That very language is being used here. Notice that it's God's people. Who are God's people? Well, it's the ransom and saved and redeemed and resurrected people of Jesus. That's God's people. And now they're in God's place, a new heaven and a new earth. And now they're under God's blessing and God's rule as King Jesus reigns and rules over us for all of eternity. The blessing of knowing Jesus, of dwelling with Jesus is Genesis 1 all redone again. Woo! It's good news. It's good news of what he's done here. It's the absence. The blessing comes as the absence of mourning and the absence of crying and the absence of pain. Notice what he says, the former things have passed away. We use the word passed away for our loved ones when they die. They go, they passed away. But notice what John is saying here. Jesus says that death will pass away. Praise the Lord. All of these things crying will pass away. It is the death of death. We talk about our salvation and oftentimes we'll use language. We talk about it here and we say there's three tenses of our salvation. In our salvation, and when we refer to that as our justification, Jesus is, has, has in the past tense, he has saved us from the, they all start with P, the penalty of our sin. And the second one we talk about in our sanctification, the spirit comes 
And what the Spirit is doing is the Spirit is, is saving us from the power of sin, these desires, these lustful desires of our flesh, but the Spirit is rescuing us from those. And then we talk about the third tense of our salvation, the future tense of our glorification. And we say there's coming a day when Jesus will rescue us from the presence of sin. But let me give you another P that may better describe it. There's coming a day when Jesus will rescue us from the pain of sin as he takes us to be with him for eternity. The former things, they have passed away. No death, no crying, no pain. All of that is over and done with. No emergency rooms, no NICU units, no funeral homes, no ICU wards. No more chemotherapy, no more pharmacies, no more children's hospital, no more funeral homes. I like to say that in heaven, like, what are we going to do? I like to work. And so I like to say that, well, we're going to work in heaven. There's going to be work to be done. We saw work in the garden before the fall. And so there's going to be work to be done in heaven. But here's the reality. Most of us are going to be out of a job. I mean, think about it for a second. Like if you are gonna be out of a job in heaven, your job is no longer gonna be needed. Maybe you could just like, you know, if you want to raise your hand because I'll be out of a job. You're no longer gonna need me to teach you because you're gonna know everything. You're no longer gonna need me to rebuke you because, well, sin is over with. You're no longer gonna need, need me to pastor you because Jesus will be your better faithful pastor. But let me just tell you right now, Chuck, I'm sorry, brother, you're out of a job in heaven. Suzanne, you're out of a job. There'll be hospitals in heaven. Many of us, most of us, we will be out of a job. If you're in the military, sorry about your luck. Doctors, nurses, technicians, your services will be no longer needed. Grief counselors, no more work for you. Isn't that great news? Look at verse number four. Jesus' final work of salvation in your life will come. As Jesus himself comes, and looks you in the face and reaches out his nail-scarred hands and he wipes away every tear from your eyes. He says, enter in, good and faithful servant, into your eternal heavenly reward. Not only will there be a reunion between us and Jesus, but I believe there'll be a reunion between our saved loved ones. One of God's purposes in salvation was to create an eternal family united by a love that would never end and would never fade, where we would never experience heartache and we would never have to say goodbye. And that's coming. It's coming in heaven. The last R is reign. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and they're true. And he said to me, it is done, over, finished. I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm the A and the Z and everything in between. That's what he's saying. I'm the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. And as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
that Jesus is king. Just like the Old Testament kings, they are both the king and the judge. They are both the executive and the judicial. Even in heaven, even in heaven as Jesus looks and offers a reward. Notice he talks about believers in two ways and we'll close just shortly. The first way he describes believers is he calls them the thirsty. To the thirsty. It's an interesting word. To the thirsty. To the thirsty, I'm going to give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It's going to be a move of my grace that I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fill you up. I'm going to give you, those of you that are thirsty, you're looking for more. Remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. Those who thirsty, those who desire, those who long, Jesus says, I'm the living water. I'm gonna now give you in eternity. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna serve you from the spring of life. And we say to that then, stay thirsty, my friends. That's what he's saying. That's the point. Stay thirsty. Stay thirsty for Jesus, that we're both satisfied and never satisfied by Jesus and stay that way. That's a good way to be. We're always constantly longing and desiring for more of Jesus and the more of his grace, the more of his knowledge, the more we learn about him, the more that we know of him and know of his ways, we stay more and more thirsty. To the thirsty, you stay thirsty all through this life. You were still desirous of me. I'm gonna give to you. I'm gonna satisfy your thirst and fullness to the one who conquers interesting picture as well. The one who conquers, who perseveres in your faith, suffers well under tribulation and ultimately because their joy is Jesus, their hope is Jesus, they're waiting for Jesus. Those are the believers that Jesus will welcome into this new heaven and the earth. And lastly, you see this group of people to which we all have been included. We all are in, have been at some time, we've been included in there. The cowardly, you would say, as a man, not me. No, that's not me. To the murderers, no, I would never. To the sexually immoral, well, maybe. To the sorcerers, no. We'll play those games, right? We don't have a Ouija board in our house. No, 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 no. But then look to the idolaters and liars. It's every one of us, he's now saying, everyone has been included in that. Reality is Jesus couldn't be just if he didn't punish sinners. Jesus will bring judgment against them. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. The reality of what this verse teaches us is we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's nothing new. Paul writes it in the book of Romans that we all have sinned and either you are trusting in Christ to pay the penalty for your sins to wash you clean Jesus has absorbed that punishment on the cross or you will pay for it for all of eternity in hell. And that's the truth. We live in a time when that's not very popular to say to people. We live in a time when everyone believes in heaven and no one believes in hell. Everyone believes in God's mercy, but nobody wants to recognize God's judgment. And yet we live in a time that we constantly are talking about justice. Who's it for? This idea of justice is so distorted in our view because the reality is the only justice is a justice that's found in Jesus. We all are in the same predicament. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in need of Jesus's salvation. And there's only two kinds of people. 
sinners who have been saved and sinners who are damned. May you be in that first group. And if you are here today and you're not in that first group, if you are here today, you've never received Jesus as Savior, you've never repented from your sin, you've never turned to Jesus, I'm not asking you about where you got baptized. I'm not asking about your church membership. I'm not asking about your religious works. I'm not asking you about your religious affections. What I'm asking you is have you trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone, by your faith alone, according to his grace alone? You asked Jesus to save you. Have you turned from your sin? And are you living that kind of life congruent to that? Do you exhibit the fruit of the spirit? Do you forgive others? Do you show grace, the same grace that Jesus showed? Do you show to others? Do you love others? As all evidence, not, not good works that we get in order to receive Jesus, but evidences of our salvation. Are you living that kind of life? Have you followed it up with baptism? Baptism is important. As Colby's even just showed us, he just preached the sermon for us. Baptism is so important. It's our public declaration that we're with Jesus. It's our public declaration that we belong to Christ and to Christ alone. Been united in his death and we've been united in his resurrection. It's so absolutely important. If you're here this morning and you've yet to be saved, it's so simple. You pray and you ask that. We, I've already walked you through it. That's what you do. You pray. It's not a magical incantation. You say those very things. You say, Jesus, I'm sorry. You admit that you're a sinner. You can even name the sin. Jesus, I'm sorry for this and this and this and this. I'm sorry, and I'm asking you to forgive me, and I receive you, and I want to count you as my treasure and you as my life, and I will live forever with you. And if you're either watching this live stream or watching it later or watching it right now in the room, the way that you can do that is you can schedule your baptism. That's the next step by simply emailing elders at thepointcommunity.net. And we'll schedule a baptism. The tank is full. Let us celebrate that. And for those in the room who are saved, can't wait. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Jesus, thank you for your, your great grace. All throughout the storyline for 47 weeks, we've highlighted the great patience and grace that you have with sinners like us your glory being made manifest in the way that you have saved us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for coming and living the life we could not live, dying the death that we deserved, resurrecting yourself from the dead, ascending on high, sending the Spirit, making all of these great precious and great promises to us, and we wait we, with anticipation, we long for your return to lay down all of the garbage of this world for it all to be over with, all of our heartaches and all of our pain and all of our tribulation and all of our suffering. It's all gonna be worth it when we see you, Jesus, and you change us to be like you. You welcome us into our eternal reward that you have accomplished for us. We didn't do anything. You've done it all, and we can't wait to see you. We can't wait to be with you, Jesus, better than anything this life has to offer. We believe that by faith. We believe that. Jesus, I pray for my brothers and my sisters that we would be simply found in you. In your great name we pray, amen.